let your servant depart in peace. O Master, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. A light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people is Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. We are back with a new series for enacting the kingdom and we're getting very close to the end of vespers father jeffrey very close to the end of vespers and we are coming to the part of the service called the song of simeon or the canticle of saint simeon Um, and this is our series preview so just a reminder to our listeners father jeffrey and i have already recorded our series we've also given it some space and now we're coming back And we're recording a series preview to let you know the general themes and thrusts of of these uh, episodes that we're going to be doing. Um, Father Jeffrey, before we begin, uh, we do this in one of the episodes, but it's worth repeating before we dive into the actual series. I just called it the Song of Simeon. I also called it the Canticle of Simeon. I also know that there are, you know, the word ode is used. So could you give a, you know, a quick 411 on um, on these terms? Yeah, sure. So a song, canticle, an ode, these are all synonyms, right? So uh, they come from different parts of, uh, you know, the linguistic history of English, um, canticle being Latin, ode being Greek, and song, I presume, is some sort of ancient Anglo-Saxon. Um, so they are perfectly synonymous. But the, the words ode and canticle, which don't tend to be used in ordinary speech, are you know somewhat peculiar to liturgical theologians as they talk about different parts of the, the services, particularly in the liturgy of the hours. And they refer largely to those songs which are um, in the biblical uh, scriptures and that, uh, that were then sort of extracted f- straight from the Bible and used within worship. So there's a whole bunch of them from the Old Testament and uh, many of them uh, we'll be talking about when we get to Matins or Othros uh, about how they form the, the sort of backbone or structure of the canon. But there are uh, three principal um, New Testament uh, canticles or odes uh, also part of the canon in, in Matins, uh, and they all come from the go- early chapters of the Gospel of Luke, um, the Song of Zechariah, the Song of Mary, the, the 
the song of the Theotokos, and this third one, the song of, of Simeon. And um, they you know, clearly, even within the biblical uh, account, within the gospel account here, they are set off as poetry, as song, as a hymn, and it may even have preceded the writing down of the gospel as a gospel uh, in worship. In other words, it may be that early Christians were already singing these things, and then Luke use them specifically in, in the gospel at, at this, these points. So they are, you know, basically the, the, the songs or hymns that come from the Bible itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's one way that, well, maybe we'll get to that in the historical context. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll bring that there. I think for this episode, we're, we're going to cycle through the different lenses that we look at each part of the service. So um, we'll start with the biblical context, Father Jeffrey, and the biblical context here. Well, first of all, it's location in the Bible. So this is a short, you know, what four verse um, song that appears in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, and even more specifically in the Gospel of Luke, and even more specifically in the first, uh, the second chapter of Luke. So, can you talk a bit about that context? So it's it's already a New Testament song. It's not a psalm like we've what has been done in uh, Vespers so much. This is actually a New Testament song mm-hmm. and uh, from the Gospel of Luke. So do you want to speak a bit about that? Right. So um, in terms of the, the, the biblical context here, this is part of what you could call the infancy narrative. So uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke both have these, which are stories about the birth in the flesh of our Lord and Savior and about some of the early events um, of his life. And Luke has more uh, here than, than Matthew does, because we have this story on the 40th day after our Lord's birth, how um, his mother and his foster father bring him to the temple in order to be dedicated according to you know normal Jewish law that on the 40th day, um, the male child is brought and dedicated um, to God in the temple. And the, the one who's waiting at the temple and receives our Lord into his arms is this elder Simeon. And uh, it's upon you know, blessing him, dedicating him, that Simeon sings this song, uh, which really represents the kind of culmination of Simeon's life. Uh, it's an expression that, you know, he's been waiting uh, his entire life to do this very act, but it's also a kind of beginning marker of the life of the Messiah, right? That Simeon announces him in in a new and profound way. He's already been announced in various ways, you know, through through the, the infancy narratives, even the song of Zechariah and the song of of Mary also indicates something is happening that's quite profound. The Lord is visiting his people in this, in and through these events. And now Simeon is kind of putting a cap really on those whole infancy narratives and suggesting what's about to unfold here. Long before anything does, we're going to talk about that um, in this series about um, how unexpected really Simeon's response is to, uh, to, to what happens that day. But there's an element of prophecy about this. He, he speaks not only about um, you know, the coming of salvation, but also of the sword that will pierce um, the, the mother of the Lord's heart, right? So uh, there's there's a whole kind of summary almost, or a, a kind of encapsulation of the gospel in his short words. And I was going through this short song, trying to find 
maybe some of the key words that would be buzzwords that maybe, you know, are picking up on themes from the Old Testament, right? Things like peace or, um, you know, my eyes have seen salvation. Um, but, but I kept reading and I'm like, whoa, this whole thing is like a big buzzword. Like each phrase mm-hmm. is, um, is, is, a, uh, is a box full of um, um, references and things to the way that the Old Testament story unfolded, right? Things like, you know, according to your word or according to your promise. And we, we know of all these, prom- the, the, you know, the promise that God made to Abraham that, you know, that his, his offspring would be like the, the, the stars of heaven, um, would be like, you know, the heavenly beings themselves. Um, and you know, the salvation, which is prepared before the face of all people we have in, in the prophets, um, this emphasis that, you know, God's salvation is, is being poured out even beyond Israel itself as well. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, one of the things to note about this short song, and it's true also of the songs of Zechariah and, and Mary, um, is that all of the phrasing comes from the scriptures comes from the Old Testament. Uh, you know, there are models and, you know, word for word, you know, paraphrases here of, um, of Old Testament, um, themes. In, in the case of Simeon here, it's, this is picked up directly from several different places in the prophecy of Isaiah. And it's, as you say, these, these, all of these three songs and in, and this one here, as we're talking about, there, there's this sense that all that had been expected, all that had been promised, the whole point and climax of the story of Israel is coming to fruition here. And so that's what is being drawn on here in the prophecy of Isaiah, this, this great story that, that began with the call of Abraham and the promises to Abraham that, that through him there would be a family and a covenant that, that would be made out of all the nations, but that ultimately through that covenant family, all the nations would ultimately come to be blessed. That was what was told at the very beginning. It's what Israel was constantly being reminded of through her history. Um, whether that was, you know, the, the early stories uh, of the patriarchs or the, the, the time of, uh, you know, the captivity in Egypt and the call out of Egypt, the kind of renewal of the covenant in, in Moses and, and then the, the kind of move towards the promised land, even in the er- early kingdoms and so forth, always and everywhere, the, the reminder was there that this is not to be uh, an exclusive thing, a thing just kind of made uh, apart from all the other nations. If it's a part, it's to be a light to the nations, right? And so this is the theme of what St. Simeon is talking about. Now, what the prophets have been reminding, what the covenant was all about in the first place, the very promises made to Abraham is coming into its fulfillment. The Lord is visiting his people and doing that which he promised. Now, as we're going to talk about in this series, it doesn't look like this. In history, this is not really the time in which any of this appears <laughs> to be the case, right? It's in fact very counterindicative. Um, mm-hmm. But here, Simeon, in this infant, 40 days old, is seeing this come to be. And he uses specifically the words of the prophet Isaiah here that point to the unlikely things happening. Because Isaiah himself, and this is part of the biblical context of this, had doubted, you know, whether God was going to be able to do this thing. Isaiah, uh, in the parts that are being quoted here, it's from a time when 
Israel is still captive in in Babylon, and there's some hope that maybe a few of them will get back, you know, to Jerusalem. And and the Lord says to Isaiah, "Well, that's you're dreaming too small, buddy. Uh, I have a much bigger plan. The whole world is going to be blessed through this." And of course. You know, this is what Simeon is, is referring to, this idea of the salvation that's prepared before the face of all people, the light of revelation for the Gentiles, the glory of the people of Israel. This is all what's being summed up here. And it's it's a remarkable moment in the gospel. And as I say, you wouldn't necessarily need to read any farther if you read this in its fullest sense. The whole of the gospel is being told here. We also in this series explore the historical development of why this part of the gospel, this song of Simeon, has been chosen and selected to be part of Esper's. Before we get there, Father Jeffrey, when we were talking earlier in this episode, it kind of made me think about the way that we often think about the gospels. And and um, we often think that, you know, you know, Luke sits down and writes from start to finish, and it's just sort of his brainchild, so to speak. I think that's sometimes how we imagine that the process was. But if we were to even take, you know, Luke's word for it, that he went and actually, you know, went to the people and asked for their stories and things like that um, to create this orderly account of the story of the gospel, um, then, you know, we, we would expect that a lot of the things he includes are actually come from oral traditions. And you mentioned that, you know, this, you know, there's a chance that this stuff was being done by the Christians and remembered, you know, by the Christians and done in worship by the Christians, even before Luke had actually recorded it in the gospel. Um, I, I don't know. Do you want to speak a bit more to that concept? Yeah. So, I mean, we know that the gospels aren't written down until, you know, at the very earliest, the kind of mid 60s. Um, of the first century. Um, so our Lord's, you know, death, resurrection, ascension, and, and, and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost and the apostles is, you know, it's been 35, 40 years. Um, and so in that period, you know, we don't know a lot. We have no, you know, first um, hand, you know, kind of records, you know, video or audio or anything like that to tell us what was going on. But the, the, the assumption is that in a culture that is, as you say, kind of highly oral in its tradition and so forth, that precisely what people are going to be doing when they get together is telling stories, right, about um, our Lord, uh, about his life, about t- t- teaching that he'd given, miracles that, that he'd done, and, and so forth. So all these different Christian communities that are being founded by apostles, they gather for worship. They're What are they doing in worship? Well, they're, they're going to do what they've always done in worship, which is, you know, sing the Psalms, they're going to read the scriptures. And now on top of that, they're telling the stories about Jesus, right? So, and those will become eventually the written memoirs of the apostles, the the New Testament and so forth. But as they're doing that, you can well imagine that bits of those stories that were actually songs, you know, why is it not uh, possible that they were already singing them? Something like, you know, the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, or here, Nunc Dimittis, the Song of Simeon. We, th- those 
terms are just the first words in in the Latin of of all of those, so they they tend to get referred to by those. So if if that's part of that oral tradition that's circulating, and it's a song, it's not so much of a leap to imagine that in those early Christian communities they would get together, they would use the Psalms, they would use the Scriptures, they would be singing things and praying together as they always had. But now in that mix are the very songs that are circulating connected with the life of Jesus. And so, yeah, Luke will eventually write that down and put them in in their orderly place as he promises to do. But who's to say that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a hundred years after the gospel of Luke that somebody thought, oh, look, there's a hymn here. Why don't we sing it in, in, in church? Well, it could be that the hymn was already being sung in church before Luke wrote it down so that later we would sort of see it embedded there. Um, and so it's we know from a very early period, all of these odes, canticles were, were being you know used in worship. So there's every reason to think that it could have even predated the, the writing down of these in that orderly account of the Gospel of Luke. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. So I'm going to test my ability to be a good student here, Father Jeffrey. Uh, because I'm going to try and recount some of the stuff that we learned in the actual historical development episode. Um, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, because it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded this, but um, my understanding is that the Song of Simeon, in terms of its place in Vespers, um, the first kind of real strong reference we get from it is in a document, an ancient document called the Apostolic Constitutions, which is sort of an instruction manual for how to do churchy things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that would probably date back to maybe the 300s, 400s-ish. Yeah, and, sort of 380 is probably yeah. the... There are various, various versions of it, and... Um, you know, but the the kind of one that most people refer to is about 380 from somewhere in Syria, and that text uh, that we're referring to, the Apostolic Constitutions. Uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. We shouldn't think of just one isolated manuscript in one place, right? So uh, this would be a document that was well copied in the ancient world and is actually quite. Um, is it ubiquitous? The correct word to use was it that widespread or just kind of very popular? Yeah, well, very popular, but also appearing in different shapes and forms in in different parts of the world. There's a few of these documents, and they a lot of them, you know, are attributed to the apostles, even though they were written down, you know, long after that. But I mean, even the sort of the so-called teaching of the apostles, the didahi, um, you know, gets copied into some of these collections, either the apostolic traditions, apostolic constitutions, and so forth. So it was a common thing to do at the same time as the New Testament is still being 
hashed out in terms of what's in and what's not. You have these various collections circulate. I mean, you have to imagine a time, you know, before Amazon, <laughs> before, you know, libraries and bookstores everywhere. So, I mean, collections of documents are really, really valuable and really important. And so, you know, whatever you could pull together that would have the name apostles on it would be pretty important for your local community and you would treasure that. And so your collection of things that were apostolic might differ from, you know, the next village over the hill and what they had managed to kind of cobble together and, and gather and, and, and so forth. And so yeah, that's why, although, yeah, there's this ubiquitousness to it, uh, there's also a, a great amount of diversity across the different things and what you find in different languages and different parts of the Christian world. Although, you know, they go to the same, you know, thing. And, and you know, to put our listeners uh, minds at ease, you know, some of the, the the central documents that are circulating, like Gospels and the Epistles of Paul and so forth, you know, those have a definitive shape much earlier on. And it's not like you've like three different versions of Romans in the fourth century um, circulating. But there's some of this other material that didn't make into the New Testament has a lot more variety about it, depending on on where things are. But to your point, yeah, early on, you know, certainly by the time these collections are are being circulated in the fourth century, there is the strong suggestion that the the Song of Simeon has had a kind of fixed place in the liturgy of the hours. Certainly throughout the Christian East, um, you know, in the evening worship, you know, and it has and probably has done for some time. Uh, there's you know a few examples here and there of it being used at other times of the day, like the morning, but uh, universally, east and west by fifth, sixth century, you know, and it's had this kind of place ever since uh, as an evening prayer and evening hymn. Our third episode in the series on the Song of Simeon is the exploration of the narrative trajectory of this song in the context of Vespers. So what, you know, the, the question we ask ourselves in that podcast is, why is the Song of Simeon here at the end of Vespers. And we talk a bit about that. And one of the things I want to observe and get your reaction on, Father Jeffrey, is number one, the first line, now let your servant depart in peace, O Master, right? So this idea of, well, it's the end of the service. Like, it's time to leave, right? That's that's one aspect that seems to narratively make sense. But more so than just something as simple as it's time to go, is the next line, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, right? This, this, um, this acknowledgement that what we have just experienced in Vespers, we have just seen the whole kind of story of God's love for his creation. Um, yeah. Do you want to react to that? Yeah. So I, as I recall, <laughs> as I recall, we will say in yeah, this exactly. series, um, there's no grammar to make that make sense. Um, the, you know, I, we trace a couple of different, you know, things and we use the opportunity to kind of go back over the whole of Vespers in, in this regard, right? So there's, there's a sense in which we've been called to something here. Uh, in this service. And we saw it, you know, from the beginning stages of setting the scene and we, we trace it right through in terms of, you know, what it is that we've been asked to enter into and therefore experience and then go out and share, you know, with the world, which is a little bit like Simeon's own life here, right? He's a righteous and devout man, 
who knows how long he's been waiting, you know, for this moment. And so there's a sense in which this expectancy is fulfilled. And there therefore is this kind of commissioning to go out. This departure is, is a go out and now share that which you have received, which you've experienced and received. And it's for the whole world, right? So what you may think that you've retreated to this space and you've secluded yourself and you've isolated yourself from all those, you know, um, you know, difficulties, toils, troubles um, in the world around you. And, and this is just about getting a little bit of private meditative space for a period, you know, and then you're going to go back out and face it. Well, no, this is actually being called together, being given the grace and experience of the life of the kingdom to be able to to go out. This is the the salvation God has prepared before the face of all people. It's to to reveal God's light to the nations and to bring the glory in and through the salvation offered through Israel, the covenant community. This is a real commissioning, right? It's a departure to do that. The other thing we we traced across the whole service, though, and it's implied in, in what you were saying about this idea of the eyes that see and about the light of revelation and so forth, and is that the whole theme of light, right? Remember, we've gathered in this service, um, you know, precisely at that time when the light is disappearing, right? So we've we've hopefully planned the service exactly that the those last rays of of uh, the the sun of the day have faded at the time we sang oh gladsome light so we've come in darkness that we've sung to the evening light who is christ himself we've partaken of that light we've experienced the peace and grace of god at that kind of climactic moments of the service we've extended that in our prayer very specifically for the world and then for our own lives right to the end, prayed for a Christian end to our lives. And now with Simeon, we're asking that, you know, God bring that illumination, that light that he has shone on the world against all the darkness. We're going to go out into the dark now, but with the light of God having shone in our hearts and enlightened us. So this this play with, you know, what the physical world is doing versus what we've done ritually, liturgically, with light in the service, with the lamp lighting and the evening light and so forth. And now using those same metaphors, we're going to talk about going out with this commission, which is about bringing the light of God to the world. It may yet be a world of darkness. We're going to step outside of the lighted you know, church into that, that darkness. Although we, we mentioned too in the service, in this, um, this part of the service, this is when the lights are dimmed, right? It's, it's a reminder, right? That the lights that we've lit here are not the lights that we're talking about. They're a symbol of those lights. So the, the light the, of revelation for the Gentiles are not the oil lamps and the candles of the church. If only it were that easy. If you know? only we could just light a candle and all the things would go, you know, would, would, would go right. Mm -hmm. Well, but no, but we carry the real light. The light that has been lit is the light in our hearts, the light of revelation that God has shared with us, not because we are to be apart from the rest of the world, but that we can lighten the world. And that's, there's this, it's a real sacramental use of, of darkness and light in this service. And it, of course, harkens back to the illumination of our own baptism and, and, and so forth. So in a way, every Vesper service is a sacrament, right? And it's a, this beautiful sacrament of light. And, um, and, and Simeon's at the heart of that in terms of what he sings about. 
great minds think alike because you anticipated my observation for the next uh, the next episode in the series, which is the liturgical participation. Like what's actually happening in the service at that point? Obviously, there's the singing of this song, but you know, one of the big things that happens at least, you know, I think should happen, um, that often sometimes doesn't happen, but um, is that that is the moment of the Vespers where the lights are extinguished, right? Uh, for my eyes have seen your salvation, you know, but that's the moment we're extinguishing the the lights. So, mm. um, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to add to that observation? I know you already uh, talked about it. Yeah, so it's, you know, I think psychologically, you know, that's really telling, right? That we're saying, okay, now we're talking about what this light really is all about. It's not the light of us, us only, right? It's not the light of those privileged people, you know, circling the wagons, hunkering down, escaping from the world um, in this kind of you know, all too common understanding of the church as kind of that sacred and holy place apart from the world. No, this, the very reason we extinguish the lights here, just as we're singing about what that light represents, is to suggest that this is a departure point, right? A de- by which I mean, it's like Simeon sings about, this is where it starts, not where it ends. And so we have to make sure that everything we've learned and experienced and taken from join, we've come out of, you know, the whole thing of the lamplighting Psalms was about coming from isolation back into community and only in that community being able to experience who God is. Well, having done that, we can now disperse newly enlightened, newly strengthened, newly comforted for that work in the world of, of living, you know, what, what does Jesus do from this moment forward? He goes forward anointed by the Holy Spirit for the salvation of the world. Well, it's kind of what happens to us at every Vespers. We're recharged, recommissioned to, to do this work. And, uh, and yeah, so St. Simeon's, Words are the the culmination of the the scriptural prophecy and promises, but they are also a a real challenge to us to to kind of carry carry that forward. And so, it's not simply we needed a point in the service where the lights were extinguished because you know we we just wanted to ritualize that moment. It, it very specifically is this moment because it's it's precisely now that we need to be thinking the light is not the light around us that we've physically symbolized God's presence amongst us with, but it's the light that, that is in our hearts. It's, I think we liken it in, in the series to the way that in certain sacraments, the tangible symbols of the sacrament are removed at the end of the sacrament in, in a ritual way as part of the service. You know, the people who are crowned at a wedding don't just wear them home and then at the end of the day, cast them aside. They are removed in the service. But the prayers of that removal of the crowns talk about the, the real crowns being the ones that are embedded in that sacramental marriage now and awaiting the couple in the kingdom. Um, and so here we do this with light, right? In, in the same kind of way, the real light has now been lit in people's hearts and that you have a responsibility to go out as Israel to be a light of revelation to all the nations. In the last episode of this series, we talk about how the Song of Simeon, especially in its context at the end of Vespers, you know, given everything we've already said and everything we will say in that series, how does this actually affect our life outside 
of church? How does this actually affect our life outside of the church? I remember in that episode, Father Jeffrey talking about our death, right? Um, you know, now let your servant depart in peace, O Master, according to your word. That's Simeon saying, now I can die. Like I've seen, I've seen it. I've seen the salvation. I can die now. And, uh, you know, one of the traditions that I've been present for at um, the burial of somebody is as they're lowering the coffin into the ground, the, um, some people will gather and sing this song, Now Let Your Servant Depart in Peace, O Master, According to Your Word. It's quite a beautiful tradition. Um, but that's one aspect that, I, that, that, that we talked about. Um, yeah. Is there anything you want to comment from there, Father Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I would completely agree with that. What a lovely expression of a life well lived, right? To be able to say this. Um, so, yes, if people are are singing it at our at our burial, you know, that's wonderful. If it, if it's actually being mumbled on our lips at the very moment of our own um, death, uh, so much the better, right? Because it means we're mindful that as the lights go out right on our own earthly existence we know that the real light has been lit the real light is the light that shines in darkness and darkness does not overtake it we just you know we 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 have to remember that is the christian message right that there is no darkness can that can overtake the light as long as we find that true light and we participate in it and it illumines us from within that that earthly death of ours is not it becomes a gateway to the light not a final darkness right and we have to remember that the world around us you know lives you know most people thinking that that will be it right that we have this brief moment in the light right we've come from darkness and we will return to darkness and you know that's it and so the christian message always has to be one of saying well no actually you may think this is the light but it's only a pale imitation uh, a kind of reflection of that true light and so what we learn in vespers and it what culminates here in this hymn is that you know there there is this kind of search for the the greater light in in life right and and that we if we live according to that then our own earthly life can end and in a way that simeon's does here in this gospel story uh, where we are uh, convinced that we have become partakers of the salvation that he has prepared before the face of all people so it, there's this greater light than the one that we've already experienced in the the earthly light of our of our temporal lives here and so um absolutely i mean in a way this fits the context of vespers we've just been praying you know through that litany of supplication to extend all of the grace of this service in every part of our life right to the very end of it right and we prayed for that christian end to our life painless blameless and peaceful well here's the expression of what that looks like we, we put forward the, the figure the character of of the right righteous and devout uh, simeon who sings this beautiful hymn of what it is to live life properly waiting on the lord and waiting for the true light you've just finished listening to another public episode of enacting the kingdom if you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. 
Also, since enacting the kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.